0: Welcome to this uvula audio presentation of The Golden Skull by John Blaine. Volume 5, Chapter 10, Ambush The hotel had received no word of Tony Briotti. Rick and Scotty hadn't really expected any word. They were certain that he had been kidnapped by Nast. Even the reason for the kidnapping was no longer important. What was important was to rescue Tony. Anhel Monotoc left before the boys were ready for dinner. He hoped to pick up some information in various places he knew around town. Perhaps gossip which might be useful. Perhaps someone who had seen something unusual which could have a bearing on the young archaeologist's disappearance. Anhel promised to report back later. He would spend the night in Tony's room. Rick and Scotty decided to have dinner and then talk with some of the local Americans about the best place to buy a Jeep. If possible, they wanted to pick one up after dinner, get it ready for travel, and then have it standing by the next morning early. They did not talk much at dinner. They were more worried about Tony than either of them would admit, and Rick was feeling a little ill at ease because they hadn't notified the police. He had talked it over with Angel, but the Filipino guide had said, We'll have to notify them sooner or later. But it will do no good. Perhaps we should notify the American ambassador in Manila, Rick said aloud. We should have notified him long before this, Scotty agreed. But we always try to do everything ourselves. I guess we'll never learn. Angel Mamatok appeared in the dining room, eyes searching for the boys. Rick saw him and waved. Angel came over and slid into his seat. "'Apparently he had seen a doctor "'because the bandage around his head was a new one. "'Friend of yours coming this way,' he said. "'Probably we'll have dinner here. "'Lazada.' "'Scotty's lips tightened. "'I'll be glad to see him,' he assured Hell. "'I want to ask him about his pale nast.' "'Rick's eyes opened wide. "'No need for that. "'Look at the door.' There, just entering, were Lazada and Nast, arm in arm. The boys waited until they were seated, and then walked over to join them. Good evening, Rick said. I hope you gentlemen are well. Lazada and Nast smiled. The assistant secretary nodded. Both quite well, thank you. And how are you? I'm fine, Rick said. But my friend is giving me a little trouble. He pulled a chair out from Lazada's table and sat down. Scotty followed suit. Rick was close to Lazada, while Scotty's chair was nearer to Nast. Your friend is giving you trouble, Lazada asked. And which friend might that be? This one, Rick said, motioning to Scotty. You see, he wants to kill Mr Nast. And I don't think we should kill Mr. Nast. Do you? Lizada smiled. Ask him. Rick turned to Nast. So, do you have an opinion on this, Mr. Nast? Nast was a little pale, but his voice was steady enough. I certainly do. I agree with you, Mr. Brant. Scotty grinned mirthlessly. You do? Know, well, I'm glad. Instead of killing you, see, I suggested that Scotty should just cripple you. Perhaps a few compound fractures of the arms and legs. Rick could see that neither Lazada nor Nast were as composed as they seemed. The calm, unearthly discussion was too bizarre. Threats were something they understood, but not threats like this. Scotty spoke for the first time, he addressed Nast. Because you're a fellow American, I thought the decent thing to do would be to just kill you outright, you know? Nast shuddered visibly. You're both joking, of course, but it isn't a very funny joke, I assure you. Rick smiled. No, it's not very funny. But neither is Dr. Briotti's disappearance. You better tell us where he is. What makes you think Mr. Nast knows where he is? Rick considered. They had no proof. No one had seen Nast in the sedan that had taken Tony from the airport. The boys saw movement at the entrance to the dining room and realized that two Filipinos were watching them there like hawks and that the hands in their pockets certainly held pistols. Rick shifted tactics. You got a lot of faith in your bodyguards? Lazada raised his eyebrows. Faith? Of course. They are loyal to me. If anyone tries to get close to me without my permission, they step in and remove that person. Or if anyone should try violence... Rick smiled. How good do you think they would be against a sniper with a rifle at 500 yards away? Obviously, they would be ineffective. Just the point I wanted to make, Rick agreed. You realize, of course, that there is no protection against assassination except to take refuge in a fortress of some kind and stay there. That's impossible for a public figure like you, though. True, your point. What is it? That Dr. Briotti has friends with rifles, and it would distress them to find out that he has been harmed. It would distress me, Lazada assured them. I am very much impressed by Dr. Briotti's knowledge and enthusiasm. I assume you think I have some knowledge about his disappearance, but I do not. Me neither, Nast added hastily. Lazada's round face glistened with perspiration. I would control my anger, Mr. Brandt. I will take your age into account. Allow me to remind you, however, that I am an official of the Philippine government, and that you are an alien. You are here on sufferance, and you have only such rights as you can persuade us to give you. Oh, I know there are agreements, but let us be realistic. Do not force me to lose my temper, and do something for which I would be sorry. Okay, Rick rose. I'm not as enthusiastic about this expedition as I used to be, but we're going through with it anyway, starting tomorrow. sooner we finish, the better for everybody, he looked at Nast. Except you. I can only promise you that your pale Lazada will never be able to give you the golden skull to smuggle into China. The boys walked back to their own table and left Nast and Lazada staring after them. That would give them something to chew over, Rick thought. I'm not sure that we were so smart, Scotty said when they were seated again. I'm sure Nast has something to do with Tony's disappearance, but I can't tell you why, I'm sure. Was it wise to throw it into their faces like that? Rick shrugged. Maybe, maybe not, but it's done now. The boys slept with locked windows and doors, but they slept soundly. Now the hall, hell also regained strength and optimism while he slept, so that the three awoke the next morning with a determination to make some real progress. They had followed their plans and obtained a jeep the night before, but they would need blankets and warmer clothing, unless their supplies could be recovered. Over breakfast, Scotty estimated their chances. Suppose we find out the truck is somewhere in the Ufugwe country. Would that guarantee our getting it back? No, it would not, so we'd better write off that stuff and the truck is lost. Fortunately, stores opened early in Baguio. The boys were able to buy the things they needed. Scotty also bought an extra five-gallon gasoline can for the Jeep. Then Angel and Scotty loaded their few belongings into the vehicle, shook Rick's hand, and headed for Bontoc. They had agreed it might be convenient to have the Sky Wagon at Bontoc too, So Rick would fly up later, planning to arrive at about the same time. Now he sat down in the hotel lobby and penned a note to the American ambassador, describing the events of yesterday and telling of their future plans. He gave the note to the desk clerk with instructions that it was not to be sent for three days. Rick figured that at the end of that time, he would either reclaim the note or that all of them would be in need of help, and the American ambassador would get the letter and use it as a reason for sending a strong note to the Philippine government, or maybe call out the Marines, the Navy, and the Air Force. Rick was a little vague on just what would happen. With a note written, he tried to read for a while. Scotty and Angel were not well started, and it would be pointless for him to go on to Montauk alone. He wondered where Chada was and what he was doing. The Hindu boy had his own way of operating, and it was one Rick and Scotty could not hope to copy. Chada had the gift of mimicry. He could fade into a new background as though he belonged to it. Rick hoped that Chata, somehow, was keeping a protective eye on Tony. He couldn't read. He tried napping, but that was no good either. At last, unable to remain idle for a moment longer, he took a taxi to the airport, topped off the Skywagon's tanks with gas, checked the plane thoroughly, got a weather report, and took off. He climbed 15,000 feet and scanned the terrain for landmarks. He spotted Mount Panay to the west, verifying the name on the map. Then he picked up on the Bontoc Road and searched for the highest point, where it emerged from the valleys and swung across a peak over 7,000 feet above sea level. If he had estimated Scotty's travel time correctly... The jeep should just now be emerging into the brilliant sunlight of the peaks. He wished for binoculars, but they had failed to bring any. Another one of those oversights that can happen on any expedition. There was little traffic on the road. A car of some kind was at the peak, probably stopping to allow the occupants to see the magnificent view. Then he saw that the car was being driven off the road into a grove of trees just beyond the peak. Now that was odd. He identified the jeep. In a moment or two, it would be at the peak. He would go down and wave. Then he would go back to the airport, have lunch, and fly on to Bontoc. That way, he would get there only slightly ahead of Scotty and hell. He lost altitude. Below, men were getting out of the car, which had driven into the scant cover of a scrub pine grove. Rick watched as they walked to the peak. Sunlight reflecting from metal. Probably lunch boxes, he thought. The men were going to have their picnic lunch while looking over the wonderful mountains of northern Luzon. Good idea. That was probably why they had parked the car off the road. Then he saw they were not stopping at the peak, but were taking positions along the road a short distance beyond. Again, sunlight glinted from metal as one of them sat down in a copse just off the road. Sweat suddenly poured onto Rick's forehead. He wasn't watching simple picnickers. He was watching an ambush being set up. It could only be for one vehicle, because there was only one in sight along the miles of Twisting Highway. Scotty and Angel Rick spun the sky wagon up on a wing and let it slide. He held the slide for long moments while the altimeter ticked off the lost altitude. Not until it registered 8,000 feet did he level off. Only 1,000 feet above the mountaintops. For a moment he couldn't see Scotty and hell. Then he saw them climbing toward the peak at good speed. In about 20 seconds they would reach it. He gauged the amount of clearance he had. It wasn't much. Then he put the stick forward and dove for the road. He leveled off so low that his prop wash kicked up dust. The jeep seemed to rush at him, and he had a glimpse of Scotty's surprised face. Then he was roaring up into a climb that flattened him against the seat. He leveled off and looked for the jeep. It was still moving ahead. Rick groaned. Scotty thought he was just messing around. He should have written a note and dropped it. But now there was no time. The jeep would be in the ambush before he could let his friends know why he had buzzed them. He was helpless. There wasn't anything in the sky wagon he could throw at the enemy. But he could at least try to make them keep their heads down. He roared in for the attack, aiming at the places where the attackers waited. The ambushers had the advantage. All they had to do was sit still. Rick could not hurt them without cracking up the plane and actually landing on them. Still, it was terrifying to have a plane roaring past your ears, scarcely two feet above your head. And Rick knew the attackers would be worried about the possibility of an accident. One of the men had weak nerves. On Rick's second pass, he stood up and ran, heading for the comforting shelter of the trees. Scotty saw him, and the jeep break to a halt. Instantly, the ambushers opened fire. Scotty and Unhell jumped from the exposed jeep. And took to the ditch. Rick dove at the riflemen again and saw them shooting at him. He gained a little altitude and circled, estimating the situation. There were four attackers, counting the one who had run for the car. That left three effective ones. Scotty and Angel were unarmed a grave mistake. They should have purchased weapons. They were in good cover, and as long as he was overhead, ready to dive on the attackers if they should try for a better position, The two were all right. Rick thought he saw a way out. At least there was no harm in trying. He took a pad of paper he kept in the door jacket and printed a message to the attackers. You have lost. No matter which way you go, I can follow. I can have the police trap you at Bontoc or Baguio. I can carry police to Bontoc faster than you can drive there. But if you leave your rifles in the road... Go to your car and head for Baguio. I will do nothing. He searched for a weight and found his emergency fishing kit, a war surplus item which he carried in case he might someday find himself at a good fishing spot without any tackle. From the kit he extracted a heavy sinker. A piece of fishing line completed the rig. He lashed the sinker to the folded paper. Now to toss it out so it would land among the attackers. He swung low on the road, gauging his distance. When he saw the peak rushing at him, he released the weighted paper, climbed swiftly, and saw one of the attackers run to get it. Apparently, it made sense to the three men. They talked among themselves for a moment, then carried their rifles to the middle of the road and went to the car. Scotty and Hell realized that something was going on, but prudently remained under cover. Not until the ambusher's car roared past on the way to Baguio, did they emerge and wave at Rick. He waggled his wings, then turned and made a beeline for the city. He wanted guns and ammunition, and there was no time like the present to buy them. Chapter 11. Warriors 3. Rick got guns, but it took time. There were no sporting goods stores in Baguio. In fact, there were no stores that carried rifles. A few carried pistols, mostly of Italian and English makes. But Rick knew that a pistol was better for morale than for actual use. Few people could hit anything with a pistol, and fewer still could hit a moving target. He supposed that Scotty and Unhell had picked up the rifles of the ambushers, but since he didn't know the calibers, he couldn't get ammunition for any of them. What he finally procured were a shotgun, 12-gauge with an ample supply of shells, and the United States Army Carbine with about ten clips. These were private purchases from a store owner who was willing to sell his personal arsenal. It was late when Rick got started for Montauk. He watched for Scotty and Angel on the road, but failed to catch up with them. They had reached Montauk before him, as he found when he circled to land. They cleared the road and stood by while he brought the sky wagon down. Angel had already hired two Igorots to guard the plane. They were tough looking customers who wore hard rock miners' helmets, a sign that they had mined gold in Miguel. The sky wagon was pulled off the road into the field, and the Igorots sat down next to it, short spears handy to their reach. The plane would be all right. Rick got into the Jeep with Scotty and Angel. The first thing he saw was their collection of armaments. They had four rifles two of them Old Army Springfields and two Carbines. Well, at least now we're well armed, he said. Where's the enemy? After that ambush, Scotty replied, starting the motor, I'm no longer sure. We certainly didn't expect that. I think we brought it on ourselves, Rick said. Last night we gave Lazada and Nast a hard time. I'll bet Lazada sent out that expedition just for laughs. A thought struck him. By the way, where are your two Eagerout boys, the ones you hired yesterday? How come they're not guarding the plane? We thought we'd take them with us as extra hands, Scotty explained. They live at the southern edge of town. We're going to go there now. We already talked to Pilly Pill. He's getting a third boy for us to hire. Hey, take it easy, Rick complained. Explain as you go. What did Pilly Pill say, and why the third boy? Our truck has gone over the mountain into Ifugwe country. It was a lumber truck, as we should have known. Nongolot was driving, and Tony and the third man was with them. That was yesterday. We didn't tell Pilly Pill and his friend to follow the truck, so they didn't. But a third out boy did follow, and he returned to Bontoc this morning. He's with Pilly now. We'll go pick them up and head for Bunaway, and we'll get Tony. Rick was still a little confused, but he guessed Scotty knew what he was talking about. Who's the Igorot who trailed our truck? Don't know. He was sleeping at Pilly Pills when we got here. Ahead, Pilly Pill was standing in front of a board shack, waving. It was evidently his home. The jeep pulled up and Rick and Scotty and Hell got out. Pilly Pill shook hands all around. You come in, he said. "'We talk, make plan!' He led the way into the shack, and within two other young Igorots sat cross-legged on the floor. One of them was Pili-Pil's friend, Balaban, who had been with him on the day they first landed. The third Igorot, as they might have expected, was Chada. Scotty pointed to the Hindu boy who was watching them with an impassive stare, as though he had never seen them before. "'Pili-Pil!' How do you know this boy is good and can be trusted? pilly Pill shrugged and showed beetle-stained teeth in a smile. Not no, maybe no good. but say he know you. Scotty looked stern. What have you got to say for yourself? Plenty, Chatter said. I'm plenty tired of putting spilled-drift chestnuts out of the fire. Do you know how cold it gets in these mountains? Last night I froze. I almost attacked a whole of Fugue village bare-handed just to get blankets from supplies on the truck. Tonight you take off clothes, put on breechcloth, stand out in the cold. I stay in the nice warm hotel in Baguio. World almanac said this tropical country. Ha! Like North Pole is tropical. Rick and Scotty grinned sympathetically. Well, if you weren't in love so much with being mysterious and adventurous, Rick pointed out, you can sleep in comfortable beds in warm rooms, but no, you have to be Chada, the vanishing Hindu. Good thing, too, otherwise Scotty and I would be floundering most of the time, not knowing what to do next. Is Tony okay? Chada rose. He looked astonishingly like Pilipil and Balaban. From haircut to bare feet, he was an Igorot. Only his brown eyes, proportionately bigger than those of the real Igorots, were different. Tony is okay, or at least he was last night. My pal Dogmeat is keeping an eye on him. You see Nast? In Baguio last night. Scotty told Chada of their visit with Nast and Lazada. Chada nodded. Nast and Nangolot are in cahoots. Nast picked up Tony at the airport and took him to a hut near Trinidad Valley. I saw all this. At the hut is Nangolot. With truck of lumber. Nast turns Tony over to Nongolot, so I drop Nast and follow Tony. Me and Dogmeat. We have a fine time. You fly overhead too, but see nothing. Not even me. You're getting blind, I think. Losing that famous Brant eyesight. We saw the lumber truck, Rick admitted. Where were you? A little way behind in Jeep. Rick remembered they had seen a couple of jeeps on the road, but paid no attention. He could see now what had probably happened. Nongolot, after stealing the earth scanner, had taken the truck to the hut at Trinidad Valley and camouflaged it with lumber. Tony had gone to the airport, but had not found Nongolot, but had found Nast. But why? Rick put the question aloud. Mix up in schedule, Chada said. Nas and Nangolat were to meet at the airport and wait for all of you. They were supposed to catch the whole lot of you at once when you got to the airport in the morning. But Nangolat was lucky, and he got the earth scanner. He took the truck to Trinidad so you wouldn't find it and get the scanner back. Nas came to the airport in the morning and found no Nangolat, but he found Tony. So he took Tony and went to Trinidad Valley to the hut, which he knows about and there was Dongolat. "'How in the heck do you know all that?' Scotty demanded. Chada grinned. "'From Nast. He reports to Lazada by telephone. I listen. Easy. Who would think poor Igorat boy knows anything?' Rick shook his head in admiration. Leave it to Chada. "'Well, now what, Master Spy?' Chada motioned to Pili-Pil and Balabon. We three mighty Igorot warriors, tonight we lead you to Ufugwe and get Tony and the truck and our other stuffs. Then we get to work and find this golden skull. You mean just walk in and take Tony away from the Ufugwees? Skari demanded. It is not that simple, Trotter said. The Ufugwe is not wanting to give Tony up, I think. First, he helped them find sacred stuff lost for many generations. Then they need new head to sacrifice to sacred stuff. So they use his. Neat, right? I think we don't get Tony back without a fight. Chapter 12. The Ufugwe Village The terrace mountain wall fell away below the valley floor. Halfway between Rick and the dark sheen of the river was a level area which Chada said was the village. However, it was too dark to see very much. "'We'll break our necks if we try to climb around among these terraces,' Scotty whispered. Chahda admitted. "'Good possibility. But what else is there? Later moon will be up a little. We will not go down until then. In the meantime, we will study the lay of the land.' They had left their jeeps on the roadway that passed above the village. So far as they knew, no one had seen them approach. Now perhaps a hundred feet above the cluster of huts, they sat on the edge of a terrace and waited for the moonrise. Rick studied the landscape below. His feet dangled over thirty feet of vertical wall. He would have to make his way down that wall to the next terrace, and then down to the next, and the next, until he emerged at the village level. He would be very much like an ant climbing down stone steps of a home, except that he wasn't as sure footed as an ant on vertical surfaces. Then, once the bottom was reached, they had to find Tony, free him, and take him up the terraces to the jeeps. Rick shook his head. They would probably have to fight every inch of the way. There was no assurance they would make it. In the village below, someone was adding wood to a small open fire in the central area that served as the village common. Rick could make out several figures. Scotty moved closer to him. We need a way to cover our retreat. Any ideas? No good ones. We could station a couple of the gang to heave rocks down there. Well, that's probably as good as anything. A shadowy figure approached, climbing down the terraces from above. Chata whispered, Don't meet is coming. I will go see what he has found out. Below, the fire was burning more brightly, and Rick could see several persons bringing wood. Apparently there was to be a large bonfire. He groaned softly. That meant light, and that would make their task much harder. Chada consulted with his friend for a few moments, then rejoined Rick and Scotty. Angel, hell, pil and Balaban were grouped at the rear of the terrace, waiting for instructions. Dogmeat knows which hot Tony is in. It has two guards. Nangalot has gone somewhere. Why are they building that fire? Rick asked. I don't know. I think it is better we move. We climb down. Dogmeat will take us to Tony. Cut him loose and fight our way back. Suddenly they stiffened as a rhythmic, metallic, clanging sound floated up to them. Angel Manatok moved to their side. Ifugwe music, he whispered. I have heard it before. The instruments are to like puns suspended from human jawbones. They're getting ready for some kind of ceremony down there. Then we'll wait, Scotty said. If they get started on some kind of ceremony, we may have a chance to move in quietly. Well, I guess that makes sense, Rick agreed, and Chada nodded. They crouched at the edge of the terrace and waited as the fire below grew into a roaring blaze. Men and women could be seen clearly now. The musicians, if the clanging could be called music, were next to the fire. Then the people fell back, and six men and six women took their places in two lines and began to dance. It was a stiff, formal sort of dance, with little body movement. Hands and arms made gestures which Rick could not interpret, while the feet shuffled slowly in the dust. Scotty touched his shoulder. Chata, you, Rick, Gagmi, and I will go. Angel, Pilly Pill, and Balaban will stay here to cover our retreat. hell, you could use a rifle. Have Pilly Pill and Balaban pry loose some big rocks. Use your own judgment. We don't want a war, but we don't want to lose our heads either. How about our truck? Rick asked. Chata replied, It is not here. Nangola took it. We get Tony, then we take the road Nangola took. Dogmeat knows. The fire was bright enough so Rick could see Dogmeat for the first time. The little Igorot was an older edition of Pillypill. He wore only a breechcloth and little pillbox hat in which he kept his matches and tobacco. His face was wrinkled and gnome-like. Lead on, Rick said. Dogmeat went to the edge of the terrace and slipped over. He climbed down with incredible swiftness. Chada followed. Rick made carbine was slung tightly across his back. Then he followed. His feet groped for toeholds in the rough stone wall of the terrace and found them without too much effort. But his descent was much slower than dogmeat or chadas. He was painfully conscious that he was an excellent target. Below, chanting voices joined the rhythmic clanging. The sound of their descent would not be heard. Rick reached the bottom of the terrace and found Chawda and Dogmeat waiting. There were two more terraces to descend before the village level was reached. In a moment, Scotty joined them. Dogmeat led the way once more. The party made its way down the face of the terrace and emerged on a level only 30 feet above the village floor. Rick was astonished that the villagers had not seen them. He felt very exposed to view, even though he realized that Shadows were deep, and that the villagers were not watching the terraces. Dogmeat led the way to the extreme end of the next terrace, choosing a place where the huts would be between the climbers and the fire. Then he vanished over the edge of the terrace, and Chada followed. Rick picked his way carefully. There were gaps between the stones, but sometimes he had to feel with his feet until he found an opening big enough to accommodate the toe of his shoe. Dogmeat and Chada had the advantage, because bare feet could find holes much more swiftly. He reached ground level behind a straw hut. Dogmeat and Chadda were waiting. Chadda had unslung his rifle, and Dogmeat was holding a razor-edged bolo. Then Scotty was down too, and they made a close file behind Dogmeat as he showed them the way to the hut where Tony was being held. The music and voices were loud now, and the fire made yellow patterns where they crossed open spaces. Then Dogmeat came to a halt behind a straw hut and gestured that this was the one. Chada took the bolo from him and made a slit in the straw of the hut. Then he peered through the opening he had made. Rick and Scotty pushed close and took turns looking. Tony was tied to a post in the center of the hut. The hut door opened onto the village common, and the only light was that of the fire. Blocking the light were two figures, Ifugwe guards clad only in breech cloths. Both held spears. Unlike the Igorot spears, the Ifugwe weapons were tall with flared points. Chada sliced through the straw of the hut with the bolo, parted it, and stepped through. Rick was close on his heels, rifle unslung and ready for use. He felt Scotty crowding him. The Hindu boy ran to Tony, knelt, and cut his bonds. Rick lifted his rifle and reached the front of the hut in three long strides. The barrel of his weapon descended on the head of the nearest Ifugwe. Rick caught the man as he fell. The second Ifugwe turned, mouth open to yell, and stepped right into a vicious butt stroke from Scotty's rifle. Chada was already ushering Tony through the opening at the rear of the hut. The boys pushed through and followed at a trot, as Dog Meat guided them back the way they had come. The music was still loud. No one had seen the guards go down. The party reached the first terrace and stopped while Tony massaged his hands. The rope had cut off circulation. Finally, he motioned that he was ready. He could climb, but slowly. At a whispered word from Chada, Rick and Scotty went up the terrace wall and took stations with ready rifles in case they should be spotted while Tony was helpless on the wall. Tony reached the top of the first terrace and whispered he could move faster now. Chada and Dogmeat took him to the easiest place to climb the second wall, while Rick and Scotty waited as a rear guard. Tony was halfway up the second terrace when pandemonium broke loose in the village below. The boys saw the dance break up, saw men rush into the hut where Tony had been held prisoner and drag out the guards, one of whom had regained consciousness. The men of the village scattered into various huts and came out with spears and bolos. Rick looked up in time to see Tony's legs disappear over the top of the terrace wall. He tugged Scotty's arm. Let's go! They swarmed up the wall as fast as their groping hands and feet could allow but not before a spear clanged off the stones between them. They'd been spotted. Chata leaned over and grabbed Rick's hand. Rick went up in a hurry. Then both of them pulled Scotty up. The Fugways were already on the terrace below. Rick realized that the Fugways had the advantage. They were used to the terraces. He also realized they could be where he now stood before Tony could get up to where Angel and the Igorots waited. He and Scotty unslung their rifles. "'Chada joined them, Bolo in hand. "'Dog meat would help Tony up. "'The boys spread out, working by hand signals. "'They were a short distance back from the terrace edge, "'close enough to swing at any heads that appeared. "'The first Afugwe pursuer came up the wall near Chada. "'The Hindu boy swung the flat of his Bolo. "'There was a thunk as he connected. "'Then Rick saw a face appear and poked at it with the muzzle of his rifle. "'The face vanished.' And there was a scream as the Ifugue fell. Rick winced. It was a long fall, but at least there was the soft ground of the rice paddy at the bottom. Another face appeared, and then Rick swung his rifle barrel, felt it connect, then answered Angel's yell. Come on! Scotty triggered off a half dozen shots. Then the three boys ran for the wall and started up. From above, Angel and Tony yelled encouragement. Angel's rifle blazed away pili Tony, and Balaban through rocks. A spear, badly thrown, came sideways through the air and caught Rick across the legs. He almost lost his footing, but recovered and went up another step. He didn't dare look down. He knew the Ifugwe's were on the terrace below, but to look down was to lose time. He went up another few feet, then got stuck, unable to find a handhold. A hand grabbed him at the ankle. He yelled and kicked. Angel appeared right over his head and dropped a rock. The rock brushed Rick and found his target. There was a wild cry and the grip on his ankle was gone. He moved laterally along the wall until he could move upward again. Angel and pili caught his arms and pulled him to the top. Chada arrived at almost the same moment, and then Scotty appeared. Rick unslung his rifle. Let's go! Make a run for it! Scotty called. Angel! Chada go get the jeep started. They had Chada's jeep as well as their own. Rick caught Tony's arm. Are you all right? Yeah, fine. Where do we go? Follow Chada. Scotty and I will bring up the rear. The frugways poured over the terrace edge and were met by Pilly pil and Balaban. Scotty and Rick joined in, rifles flailing. In a moment, the terrace was clear again. The temporary victors took to their heels before the next wave of effugues could arrive. Ahead, they heard the jeeps' motors. It looked like they would make it all right. A spear arched overhead and struck, quivering in the road. Rick snatched it out of the ground as he passed. Then there was a gasp from Pilly Pill as a spear caught him in the thigh. Instantly, Scotty knelt, rifle blazing. Rick and Balaban helped Pilly Pill while Dog Meat yanked the spear free. They rushed the wounded igorot to the waiting jeeps. Let's go, Chata yelled. What is the delay? Lend a hand, Rick called, and willing hands helped lift pili Pill into Chata's jeep. Rick tumbled in behind him. All aboard, Scotty yelled. Come on, let's go, take off. He fired a last shot at the oncoming of Fugway's. Then jeep wheels spun in the dirt. Headlights flashed on and they were on their way. It was not until they had climbed to the safety of the mountain peaks overlooking Bonauea that they pulled to a stop. Pillypill's leg was their first concern. They examined the wound in the glare from the chief's headlights. It was ugly but not crippling, and it was already starting to clot. Rick bound it with a clean handkerchief. Then, their wound taken care of. The boys took time to exchange notes with Tony. I'll walk right into it, Tony said. Literally, I walked to the airport, expecting that I could ride back with Arnell. I had a grave suspicion, of course, that he was non but I'm afraid it didn't occur to me that there was any danger in charging him with it. Rick shook his head. Did you expect him to just give up without a struggle? I'm afraid I did. However, he wasn't there. There was no one on the field at all except a couple of workmen on the far side. I went over to see if the plane was all right, and the sedan arrived. Nast was in it. He didn't waste words. He just pointed a pistol at me and ordered me in. We have an idea what happened then, Scotty said. From Chada, He was following Nast. I hoped he was, Tony said. I was afraid that unless Chada knew my whereabouts, I could probably be completely cut off without any help. Well, time enough later for the rest of the story. You know I came from Baguio in our own truck. Yeah, we know, Rick said. Chada again. Now, Chada is going to lead us to the truck, and we're going to get our equipment back. Do you know where the truck is? Scotty asked Chada. Dwongweek does. Nangolat drove it to a village on the north side of the valley. Nangolat is there now. Maybe we meet him on the road. Maybe at the village. We make flying raid, okay? Swoop down, take truck, and leave. Sounds good to me, Scotty said. We'll use one jeep to attack, with the other standing by as a flying reserve. Angel, take the reserve jeep with Pilly pil and Balaban. No, I got a better idea. We have too many men. We need the extra jeep in case of a breakdown, not for the men it'll carry. Pilly pil and Balaban should stay here. The rest of us split up between the two jeeps. When we find the truck, I'll drive it. Chata is guard. Then we'll leave Rick and Tony in one jeep and Angel and Dogmeat in the other. How's that all sound? It sounded fine. Angel spoke up. I would rather be in the first jeep in case we meet N'Angolot. Scotty shook his head. Not tonight. Your turn will come later, Angel. The first thing is to get the truck back. Pilly-pill, will you be all right here until we get back? i would be fine. You go. They loaded into the jeeps while Pilly and Balaban moved into a clump of brush and prepared to wait. Don't bother about silence, Scotty said. We'll just hit and run. If they hear us coming, it won't matter, because they won't be sure what we're after. How about those Afugwe natives from the village? Tony asked. They're probably swarming over the road like flies. We will not go near them, Chada replied. The truck is a different way. Come on, load rifles, we go. Rick was driving the lead Jeep, Chata on the seat next to him. Tony and Dogmeat were in the rear seat. Scotty was with Angel in the other Jeep. The road was reasonably good, although narrow and winding. Rick roared down into the valley as fast as Prudence and Newton's laws of motion allowed. Had he gone any faster, the Jeep would have tipped over on some unexpected corner. We would be there soon, Chata shouted. Rick kept a sharp watch ahead. The yellow cones of light seemed lost in the vast darkness of Bonauea. There were no other lights. Watch for a fork in the road. Go left, Chada relayed Dogmeat's instructions. The fork appeared. Rick swung left and almost bashed into the truck. It was parked with lights out close to a village. Both jeeps slid to a stop. Scotty and Chada jumped out, rifles ready, and ran to the truck. The keys, Rick yelled. Are they in it? Don't need any keys, Scotty yelled back. Turn around, quick. Angel was already turning his jeep and Rick followed suit and his headlights swung an arc across the Ifugwe village and reflected off of spear tips. The natives had already been alerted. The truck roared into life. Rick pulled to one side and motioned Scotty by. Then as the truck went past, Rick triggered off a half dozen shots, aiming high. Tony did the same with the shotgun, sending loads of birdshot whistling through the red leaves of the dongla bushes. The screaming madman leapt at them, spear extended. It was Nangolot, face distorted with hatred and fury. He thrust at Tony, but the archaeologist knocked the spear aside. Then, as Nangolot's thrust carried him close... Tony let loose a roundhouse that caught the ifugway squarely on the jaw, whirled him sideways and dropped him like a log in the dust of the road. Then Rick let out the clutch and the jeep leapt forward. A spear went through the windshield and showered glass on him, but he only squinted his eyes against the flying splinters and fed the jeep more gas. Ahead were the red taillights of the truck and the other jeep. The plan had worked all right, He didn't know whether or not their supplies were in the truck, but they would soon find out. "'I'll say one thing about being a spin-drip scientist,' Tony said from beside him. "'It's never dull. Do you wild Indians go in for this sort of thing often?' "'Only when necessary,' Rick said. "'Of course, it seems to be necessary pretty often. "'So we're in practice,' you might say.' Tony chuckled. "'I'm grateful. "'You know what Nangolat is working up to, I presume?' Rick Dittman said so. He's planned to force me to locate the golden artifacts with the Earth Scanner, then the find was to be celebrated with the sacrifice of a head. That was the part I objected to most. You see, that head was supposed to be mine.